Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Welcome to episode 342 with my guest, Cal Holzer. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The uh, The website for this show is mentalpod.com. MetalPod is also the Twitter handle that you can follow me at. And um, if I seem a little bit out of it tonight, it's about 2 in the morning my time on uh, Wednesday. And I'm recording the show early. Normally, I re record it uh, late Thursday night uh, Pacific time and then post it just after... Uh, you know, midnight or one o'clock uh, in the morning on Friday morning Pacific time. But I'm going to be in San Francisco uh, tomorrow for two days, going to do some live podcasts. And um, so I fly out tomorrow and I'm juggling about 900 things uh, right now. Um, the divorce paperwork is kind of... Uh, we're still in the midst of that, separating stuff financially. I'm getting kicked out of my apartment. I'm looking for a new place to live. Um, it's, you know, it's all quality problems. I'm very grateful to have the life that I do. Um, it just, I think the perfectionist in me wants to do everything perfectly. And I'm just, it, I'm exhausted. I'm completely exhausted. And um, so uh, there aren't going to be uh, much in the way of surveys for this uh this episode, but the the interview with uh, Cal is one of my favorites. It's such a thoughtful. Um, uh, I'm not going to try to explain it. Um, 
what I want to tell you about. Um, I had a moment about an hour ago that I, I just came from a hockey game and um, I had a moment that to me kind of embodies what recovery looks like for me on a, on a daily basis. Um, it's, for me, it's about the little things that you do every day and you do enough of those little things and then those build into what what recovery, emotional recovery or recovery from, you know, um, uh, drinking or using drugs or whatever, you know, anybody's addiction is. So I'm, I'm playing hockey and I think because I've been stressed about where am I going to live, etc. Um, I put a bid in uh, on a house. I don't know if it, houses are getting really expensive here and um, I don't know if it's it, it will be enough money to get this house, but I I really like it, and um, I don't know, even if they did accept the bid, if I would be able to move in in time, or if I'm going to have to move from this apartment to another apartment and then move in. So it's just all of this stuff is swirling around in my head that wants to do everything perfectly. So I'm playing hockey, and um, and I go to get the puck in the corner, and uh and this guy and I kind of mash up against each other, uh, against the boards, and and I'm trying to poke the puck, uh, which is at his feet, and my hand kind of uh, goes between him and the boards, and he, like, chicken wings my stick. He, like, clamps down on my stick. It's, it's a trick that a lot of hockey players will do so the ref can't see that they're actually holding your stick. And um, so he does that, and what your smart thing to do when they do that to your stick is take your hand off your stick so then the ref can see this guy is holding your stick. So that's what I do. I pull my hands back, I look at the ref, and the ref's not doing anything. And this guy then takes my stick with his hand and throws it. (laughs) And the ref doesn't call a penalty. And I'm out of my mind at this point. It's just like... Any emotional recovery is lost on me at this point. And this guy that that had done this uh, skates to the front of our net, and uh, one of his teammates is winding up to take a slap shot. And, of course, this guy's going to try to tip it in past our goalie. So I go blazing over there as fast as my uh, old body will allow me. And... uh, and I bring my stick down to knock his stick out of the way. But because I'm so amped up, I completely miss his stick and just slash uh, his knee pads, which was clearly a penalty, which the ref called. But in that moment, I was so upset that the ref didn't see, because they always call the retaliator. They never call the person that instigated the thing that pissed off the person that retaliated. So um, I'm stewing in the penalty box and trying to calm myself down uh a little a little later in the game uh i fumbled the puck and i could hear this guy cuz we were near his bench i could hear him say to his teammates that guy sucks <laughs> and i can just feel the rage building in me and i'm like am i going to hit this guy am i going to that is not the thing to do. That's not going to, yeah, it will make me feel better for about a minute, but it's not a good habit to get into. And, uh, I might hurt him or myself. Who knows? So 
I don't do anything. I just try to play hard and clean as much as I can. It's a tie game. It goes to a shootout. Our team doesn't score. Their team scores one goal, so it goes to their team next. And if they score this penalty shot, not penalty shot, but uh, um, I'm blanking on the name of it, uh, shootout uh, attempt, they'll win. And who goes up to take it? (laughs) This motherfucker. And I'm like... (laughs) Oh, universe, are you really going to do this? Are you really going to have this motherfucker win the game? And he did. He won the game. And I was like, oh, God, I so want to say something. Because then you do the handshake line afterwards. And that's to me, is where recovery really comes in. Because that is where I make myself do the right thing. And I shook their hands. I complimented the guys that played well. Their goalie played great. I make sure to tell him that. I told this guy as he passed me, good game, good game, good game. And then I circled around and I uh, skated up to him and I said, hey, I just want to apologize for slashing you. I was frustrated. And uh, and he was very, he was so, uh, he was so kind about it. He He said, uh, whatever. <laughs> I don't even know what he mumbled. But the point is, it wasn't about what I get from him. It's about me cleaning my soul, shrinking my ego, and reminding myself that I don't have power over people upsetting me or not upsetting me. I don't have power over how other people act to me. I can just choose how I react to it. And I was proud of myself. And I couldn't wait to come tell you guys. Um, Speaking of uh, recovery, I've told you guys about our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. I love them. It is uh, a great online uh, therapy service. Uh, If you want to check it out, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental uh, part because uh, then they'll know you came from the website and they'll continue, uh, hopefully, to advertise with us because we do need advertising. Um, So go there. uh, Just fill out a questionnaire and then they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week of uh, counseling to see if online counseling uh, is right for you. And you have to be over 18. And I highly recommend it. Uh, I've had a lot of listeners giving me great feedback uh, about their experience with it. And uh, I've been using a BetterHelp.com counselor now for uh, about a year. And um, I love her. I love her. Um, what do I want to tell you? <laughs> Here's a little tip for you guys. Uh, I'm, uh, I think because of the self-induced stress lately, uh, I've been doing some sugar eating at dawn. <laughs> That's my new workout uh, video, by the way. Sugar eating at, at, at dawn. It just shows me on a on a beach, and if it, it it says the sun rises and it's just my belly, and you think it might be a beached whale, and then I pop up and I say, "Are we ready to do? Are we ready to do some sugar eating?" But here's what I caught myself doing: looking at myself in the mirror, and inventing stretches so I don't look as fat. Like, I notice I look great 
if I pretend that I'm doing the wave among a group of people or I'm reaching to scratch the ceiling. I, my abs look terrific when I'm doing that. Um, I hope that I don't run out of stretches because um, I, I just don't want to see that day. But um, I want to tell you about our other sponsor, Blue Apron. Uh, you know, I talk about self-care a lot on the podcast and using Blue Apron is a really big part of self-care for me. Um, three, four times a week, I will uh, take time out, slow down, cook a delicious meal, um, not look at my phone, and there's just something so nice about doing nice things for yourself and 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 not being in a hurry doing it. Uh, Blue Apron's the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country for less than ten bucks a meal. They deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. Um, they are uh, you spend so much less time at the grocery store. Um, or what I do is if I don't know what I'm going to eat. Uh, you know, before I started doing Blue Apron, I would just not eat at all because I couldn't make my mind up. Oh, do I feel like going somewhere or, you know, what do I have in the fridge? I like having those those three meals uh, a week to look forward to. Um, I'm learning stuff, learning, learning things that I actually didn't learn uh, when I was doing a cooking show. For, uh, for all those years. So here's some upcoming meals uh, in August. Uh, basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanella. Sautéed shrimp and green beans with clove tomatoes, spinach, and orzo pasta. Whole grain pasta and summer vegetables with heirloom tomato caprese salad. Caprese. Uh, miso butter salmon and lo mein noodles with cucumber and charmed tomatoes. And meatball pizza with fresh mozzarella cheese and charmed tomatoes. I'm looking forward to that one. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mental. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, I just want to read two surveys real quickly, and then we'll get to the interview with Cal. This one is filled out by a sullen artist, and she writes, uh, this is a happy moment. She writes, uh, listening to Dana Eagle, and that's last week's uh, guest, talk about her experience with her cousin coming out to her reminded me of when my cousin came out to me. I'm pansexual and very open about it. At a family barbecue, my male cousin sat by me and asked if we could talk. He came out to me as bisexual, and I assured him that it's fine. I'm proud of him for coming out, and we talked for a couple of hours. A few months later, he came out on Facebook to his family, and I spent the whole day reading comments, making sure I didn't have to fight anyone. Everybody was supportive and lovely, and he thanked me for helping him feel comfortable enough to come out. Now he has a boyfriend, has graduated high school on time after thinking he wouldn't, and I'm so incredibly proud of him. That's, you know, I never in my lifetime thought, that I would hear a story of somebody coming out and having an entire family and even extended family be supportive. That is so awesome. And then this is an uh, awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Dead Squiggly Line. And he writes, 
I haven't reread my mom's suicide note in 20 plus years since I first got it back from the morgue with her things. The only thing I remembered about it is that she incorrectly spelled loser. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) That is fantastic. I'm here with uh, Cal, who is a friend from uh, one of my support groups, and we actually uh, have uh, the same guy who kind of mentors us in the uh, correct in the support group, and that's how I met you. And I don't remember how we got on the subject of it, but you started to tell me some of your childhood, and I was like, "Hey, what are you doing Monday night? <laughs> Come be on my podcast." Um, before we dive into the specifics of it, uh, you're how old? I'm, I just turned 35. Okay. Uh, the last couple of days, I was trying to figure out how to describe it because I used to describe it in one way. But one way of putting it is growing up an hour north of Manhattan and Jewish insular culture pre-World War II kind of... Uh, Pre-World War II? Yeah. Um, kind of mentality. I see. So that uh, some of the advancements in technology didn't really make their way. Well, advancements in technology, yes, but the ideology of the community. So I, I sometimes describe describe it as a cult-like community, but it's, I don't know if you're familiar with like a Jewish shtetl, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a, men and women don't drive, uh, don't walk on the same side of the street. Is it, was it Orthodox? Uh, it's very Orthodox. Okay. Orthodox, Hasidic. Um, so there is men drive, so there are cars that it's not like right. horse and pony, but there is, uh, they don't speak English. They only speak Yiddish. Mm-hmm. There's no English education. There's no TVs. There's no, um, internet unless if, uh, it's approved by a rabbi arranged marriages. Um, wow. So it's so, it's when you walk into that community, which it is a gated community, and you it's impossible to find anyone who isn't Jewish and isn't exactly that particular sect living in that community. Really? It's not a, it's almost like a, a private, its own little town with its own mayor, with its own rules, with its really? own um, security, if you will, almost like its own police. Um, and the population of it would roughly be then and now. I don't know the exact number now, maybe uh, 15,000 families. Okay. So Um, pretty big. It's pretty big. It's only grown. I mean, they have four to six classes per grade. I mean, there's, think about this. My grandmother, who was a survivor, Holocaust survivor, she came here after the war, having lost 12 of her siblings. She had 12 kids. Every single one of her 12 kids had 12 to 17 kids. Oh, my so God. I personally am one of 12 kids. 
I have 11 siblings. I'm one of 12. I have over 70 nieces and nephews. Oh, my grandmother, who's still alive, has over 500 great, great, great. Think of like five generations of peopling. So it's a very, very large family, but that's normal for that community. Yeah. How much of the template for having that many kids is part of Jewish orthodoxy and increasing the, the population to uh, spread the message and, and maybe be safer? And how much is a, a reaction to the Holocaust, if any? I would say it's neither as a as an intentional or conscious um, way of life. As in, help me understand why somebody would want to have twelve kids. That's what I can't wrap my head around. Well, think think of for example my mother. She was um, they had an arranged marriage when they were seventeen. When she was eighteen, she had her first child. Between 18 and 42, she was busy making babies, having children, so, either either recovering or getting pregnant or having a year or two between and then getting pregnant again. And she almost died when she had her last child. And the doctor asked, would you like us to kind of close you up and mm -hmm. prevent you from having children again? And she, her answer was, if God wants me to have another child, I'll have another child. So there's a very interesting relationship between reality and their, their ideological belief system that everything is destined and everything is in God's hands. And they, there as a, them as mothers or as women is an obligation and a privilege to be living in purpose. And their purpose is to give birth to children. So I don't think it's reactionary, certainly not consciously. Mm. Um, I mean, my grandmother will speak with pride. Um, look at all these kids. They all came from me. Like they couldn't erase us. They couldn't do away with us. They couldn't. Um, but that like, wasn't the reason why. It's not a why. Okay. It, the why is literally a religious um mindset or a religious way of life them as women they give they they just have children That's, is is there um uh, is contraception a thing or is yeah. that frowned upon Kinda it's like frowned upon and only in recent years um different forms of contraception has has been introduced only in extreme mental illness or in extreme cases approved by a rabbi so it's not even as a as a luxury or as a thing to do to prevent from having children is usually looked down upon. And how long is, is this particular, can you name the sect? Are you comfortable? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. What's, what, what is the sect? So the name of the town is New Square. And the name of the sect is Square, like as in a square. S-Q-U-A-R. Yeah. Um, similar to like England, New England, York, New York. Okay. Square is a town in Ukraine, which is where that dynasty of religious sect came from. I see. So they, their town is New okay. Square. Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi Jews. Mm -hmm. um, a part of the square is one of the legs of the major Jew Hasidic Orthodox Hasidic 
movements that came from the Hasidic movement back in Russia. Um, very, it's a fascinating culture. I mean, for a long, obviously, for a long time, um, I had personal resentment and undealt with um, stuff having grown up in that world but as a way of life is really really interesting you walk in there and you see even my own siblings who've gotten married had tons of kids and it's like when you're going to wear what is predicted when you're kind of going to get married is predicted what you're going to do afterwards is predicted it's unlike what you would find in normal hmm. normal life normal I, I would imagine to some people uh there is a certain amount of comfort and and ironically freedom in yeah. that and that you're not laying awake at night saying should I, I be doing this do? should i be doing that but yeah. if you find it the least bit stifling uh it has to be a nightmare yeah yeah uh what is i don't normally get to, to uh political but uh, what is the, the, is there a stance on uh, Zionism? It's a very good question because most Orthodox groups or most Jewish groups do have a stand mm -hmm. on it. As in there are Hasidic groups that are very anti-Zionistic, anti mm -hmm. if that's a word, um, like Satmar, if you will. Um, like who? There's a, a sect called Satmar. Oh, okay. And how, they how are, do you spell that? Uh, I'm, I'm doing this for our transcriber <laughs> right now. I'll get it. Right now, he or she is <laughs> clapping their hands saying, thank you, Paul. Um, with our community, we've always been very neutral. And I, I'm very amused that I'm saying our community, as in I haven't been a part of that community for most of my life. But they've always been very neutral, meaning... He, the the leader of the community was always known as like even when there were intense public discourse between different groups he was always the neutral one never taking sides with any of them so even when it comes to zionism there's a big there's a, a large following of his Hasidic sect that live in Israel mm -hmm. and they're not against the state there we usually have integrated very neutrally as in if there's welfare to be taken obviously they do mm -hmm. there's taxes to be paid they do they're not against or kind of we've mostly taken the advantage of the opportunity of being able to go back to Israel mm -hmm. whereas some other sects will even if they would be living there they would be living in communities that are very much outspoken against the state mm -hmm. um, so I grew up as, with a very with a, an intense love for Israel mm -hmm. and that was the natural place that I moved to or went to in my early teens like did it, you go serve um, I did not go to, I did not serve, as in I did not become an Israeli citizen. I was there either on a student visa or work okay. visas. and um, Because if you do become a citizen, there's you required do military serve. service, yeah. right? Yeah. For yeah. both men and women. That's correct. Right. So my daughter, who is now 13, when she turns 18, will either have to go to the army or do different forms of service. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's in. What what I'm trying to uh, get a feel for is the mindset. You know, when you have a community that is uh, 
chooses isolation and to kind of distance itself from mainstream uh, culture, society, whatever, to understand why. And, and because I would imagine that can't help but seep into the worldview, the interpersonal views of the people yeah. raised within that, especially the kids who have yet to question it. Well, the answer to that question could be very much seen through the lens of Like we were sheltered from ever seeing the outside world. I was fortunate and unfortunate that I was growing up. I was very curious. I was very, I had a grandfather who survived the Holocaust, had written two books about the Holocaust, spoke seven different languages, was this one of my heroes, like and this very, think of like a, a gentleman who went to university pre-war, um, helped hundreds of survivors through the war get fake papers and help them to survive, and like he was a he was an activist, mm -hmm. and he was in Brooklyn with this with the founder of our town of like the founder of the current Rebbe, and which Rebbe? So the Square Rebbe, who's the leader, kind of the is head. that Rabbi? Is that just your yeah? Oh, okay. So the square rabbi mm -hmm. or rebbe, um, the head of our community. I wasn't sure if you meant that or Reba McIntyre. A lot of people will confuse the two of them. Go ahead. Nah. His father was the one who founded the community. Mm -hmm. So his father asked my grandfather to help him physically build the town I grew up in. So when they went to Muncie, New York, when they went to Spring Valley, New York, where our town is, it was nothing but trees. I mean, it was literally they went into the woods to start their own little community. Mm. So my grandfather, the reason why I'm saying that is I had the opportunity to see the world very differently than a lot of people in that community. So even growing up in such isolation, I was introduced to more openness than most people growing up in that world. So here I am, I have a relationship with my grandfather and I'm, I'm, I've learned a lot about the war and whenever there was big things happening in the world, I, I, we were always hear that from him. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother was the only woman that's, uh, one of the two women I believe growing up that was still driving in that community. So my grandfather dressed differently, more modern, a lot more educated. My grandmother's driving, like we had different privileges because he had a very special relationship with the founding mm. founding Rebbe of the community. And was the founding Rebbe living there as well? Who was he had the, already passed. So who was the... the so when the, I was the, growing the head, up... The head person there. And I'm just going to guess it wasn't a woman. It was not a woman. It was uh, Rabbi Tversky, mm -hmm. um, who's the current rabbi in New Square. And... But to kind of to come back to your question, so I'm growing up with a lot of. I I remember growing up. I, I couldn't understand why people had to dress in a particular way. I wanted to dress my own way, and then um, people in the community, in the community, like kids, like you reach a particular mm -hmm. age and you have to switch over from um, wearing particular type of kippah to a bit like the conformity is so integrated into that mm -hmm. culture 
that um you don't really have a choice it's mm-hmm. kind of like you have you're at this particular age now you're supposed to do x and if you don't like it go home and scream but you're going to come back to school dressed in a particular way and doing things in a particular way i went to catholic grade school for eight years so i can relate to a little, a little bit, bit of it yeah it's yeah. certainly a minor version of uh of what you but in terms of the 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 uniform code you right. know if our hair touched our collar uh, the the priest would come up behind you and grab, you know, that hair and kind of lift you up on Ouch. your toes by it. Yeah, <laughs> that does not sound traumatizing yeah, at all. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so I was a kid. I can't remember what age when I was recommended to go see a doctor for medication for depression and for acting out and for. Uh, think of like a soul who just grew up wanting to explore the world, wanting to be free, wanting to be able to ask questions, be able to explore, be able to uh, just be me. And all through my childhood, I was being stifled more and more. So I almost feel, I when I look back at my life, I kind of feel God had a sense of humor and just by mistake threw me into the wrong um group of people mm-hmm. um I didn't belong there um so as i was growing up um i have tons of siblings i i i'm i'm didn't particularly feel very close to my parents uh, i used to joke and i know it sounds a bit harsh but the only time i knew my father really intimately was when he was beating me and i was laying in my own blood now that wasn't regularly and he's not a rageful person he was just a very very pious very disciplined person but just the way he dealt with disciplining me was not a very particular effective way and was mostly beating us did you Uh, get the feeling that it it was his belief that the harder he beat you the better it would work or that he was also letting some of his personal anger out well, I have to believe that uh, that was letting some of his anger out. But why do you have to believe that? Because he, if he didn't have pent up stuff, then I would think dialogue would be more of a natural, <laughs> <laughs> more of a, a natural way of wanting to communicate. Hey, you should be hanging out there, not with older Whoa. boys, or not in dark rooms, or like yeah. he once found me in a room rather like hey what's going on with you like are you feeling left out like I, is there any th- way that you want to be seen that you're not being seen or you're not being appreciated whatever healthy communication would come in yeah um it, it wasn't that it was more yeah. like you should not have done it and now you're going to be beaten for it um but sexual abuse started coming into my life around age eight and nine by the right-hand person of the square Rebbe. So think of where he lives and right next to the temple and they kind of, they drive cars with sirens and lights and it's almost like a police force of security. Um, Whenever he would drive somewhere, they were like flying with lights and sirens and um, there were many times when Square Rebbe would fly somewhere, literally where 
um, highways will be blocked off in order for him to be able like you see these people like as above the law like yeah. they are not like he was they, your, they he, don't sit in traffic right. they they fly like the yeah. the the particular um, rules that other people have to obey by doesn't exist like he meets with presidents he meets with um governors like it's not so his right hand person is somebody who's really really powerful growing up in that community those are people that you look up to he's he's your community's jerry sandusky i don't even know who that is but he 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 was uh a pedophile who oh, God. <laughs> uh was on the football coaching uh team of penn state oh i was just gonna say and, that yeah. and he used his access yeah. to do that and a lot of people looked the other way because yeah. they didn't want to draw attention to it and it because it might put the program at risk so that was exactly that i mean i remember as a kid walking into his office and he would open the safe and i remember seeing stacks of cash uh, i mean think about it the square Rebbe sits in his office sits in his in this holy, beautiful, regal room when he sees people from all over the world that come to get his blessing. A part of doing that is they give him what they call a kvittel, or they'll give him a little a little paper with the names of your kids, and it's always attached to a $100 bill or a $50 bill or $1,000, or like every single human being that goes in to see the Square Rebbe goes in to see them with a note and cash. So that's just how they do it. That's just mm-hmm. a way of give, giving back. It's a way of supporting the the leadership. It's a, a part of um, you give something of you and now then he blesses you with like this. It's kind of like when you look at the Rebbe, uh, there's Rebbe and then there's like a clear path to the creator of the universe mm-hmm. and all the requests and desires and aspirations and people being sick or life decisions you go he looks at this piece of sheets and he kind of like goes into this uh, um, trance and then he starts praying with you and he gives you directions and Mm -hmm. uh, gives different blessings and it's always with cash Mm -hmm. so and can you hear the cash register over the blessings (laughs) (laughs) no you just see a stack of um little papers with cash on his table and then it would be taken away now why would uh, people from outside the community be coming in there are there so are there's there... outside so the square chassidim as in uh, people that belong to that sect that live in bar park that live in flatbush that live in williamsburg that live in israel in london and antwerp like all over the world there are hasidic um families that for lack of a better word, that um, this is the Vatican for their exactly for their exactly. sect. Yeah. They basically, they are what's the word I'm looking for? Um, their allegiance to mm-hmm. what's the word I'm looking what's, for? What's the the uh, generally the roughly the world population that adheres to that sect? I don't I, I don't really know. Okay, can't really answer that question. Um, so I would come into the, his right-hand person's office, and there's literally just c- stacks of cash. I, I mean, they would go to their respective places. But I was one of those kids that would walk out of the office with hundreds of dollars in my pocket. Because you stole them or he gave them to you? Because he gave them to me. He, to he would touch me inappropriately many times. 
there was this ongoing insane relationship of me asking her for money and him having access to me. Now, I saw lots of kids my age and a bit older uh, that were always going in and out of his office. You can never tell why, although there's cameras everywhere and everything is being recorded, but there could be a million different reasons why I would be there. My grandmother might have sent me to go pick something up, or my mother, who's involved in helping the community in another particular way, was asking a question. I mean, there's, everything is so intertwined. Yeah. So me not feeling always very comfortable at home, me feeling always pressured in the community um, for many reasons, um, me being out late um, before different holidays or before like when the Square Rebbe's, one of his kids or grandkids will get married, it's like the Super Bowl. I mean, there's lights and there's they're building bleacher, bleachers and signs and it's like there's always something going on in that community that was this big deal of celebration. Um, but he had, now years later, I know he had years and years and years of history of abusing kids. Mm-hmm. Now, when I got sober at 18 and I started going through my own process of recovery and confronting a lot of all of the crap that I went through as a kid and having left that community and, I mean, leading up before 18... It was just rage and anger. And I mean, it was a community that just got away with anything. I, I can't imagine how much uh, rage and oppression um, and confusion you, you must, have, must have felt. Um, how did he... Pres- I'm always interested to know the manner in which perpetrators yeah. present it, spin it. It, whatever. I mean, it, it's a, it's such a it's such a bizarre topic because there's so many factors at play. So, even being my age, being who he was, he had no right to ever take me outside of the community. I mean, like he knows the rules. Uh, like, yes, maybe I was helping. Um, build something or maybe I was helping with organizing something which I was many times all through like 9, 10, 11, um, 12 but so I remember when I was fairly young and I don't remember the exact um, age we would drive out outside of the community he would take me into this building called the Rafu Health Center which is kind of like it's not a hospital but it's it's a medical center um which serves for a lot of people outside of the community, but also most of our community uses that. And I, I remember distinctly one particular time where it wasn't even, we never, maybe we did. I haven't thought of the like the actual sensation, the communications of what words were exchanged that had the understanding that I was going to get in the car, um, supposedly by my choice, and then drive outside of the community. And it was obviously it was so, was so significant. Like I'm sitting in this like this car that has all the lights and sirens and all the gadgets, and it's this really important. Um, which which I'm sure in his mind was leverage. Oh yeah. For oh him. yeah. Oh yeah. 
But it, it wasn't like, <laughs> oh, we were going to go to the 7-Eleven. There is no 7-Eleven right. around there. And 3 o'clock in the morning, you shouldn't be driving out with a kid outside of the community. And did anybody know that you were with him? No. No. And how many times had you been outside the community? How, how many times would an average kid who was born there and is 11 have seen outside the walls? It's hard to tell. Most kids that age have never left that community. Um, unless if you're a family like us, like we would go away on, for the summers, we would have, we would go to Muncie. Like me and my family, we have been outside of the community. Not as a kid, I wouldn't go by myself, but I have been out yes. of the community with my family. Um, but there's a lot of kids at that age that have never left. They don't even go away for camp. Like they, mm -hmm. that's the community in the world they live in. Okay. But I, the, the moment, the most significant moment of this particular story is walking into that building and remembering like he, he would, he undid the, the alarm of the building. And this building is like, what, I don't know, five story building or mm -hmm. four story building, uh, massive in my head being this little kid. And then the door locking behind me and that chill, like the entire hallway walking into the building is dark. Wow. And it's. So we around three o'clock in the morning and the doors closing, the metal doors closing behind me and him turning the alarm on again, which means we would have to go up to the next floor before the alarm would turn off. And that just the paradox of sheer terror of I can be killed, I can be chopped up, I can be raped, I can be beaten. There's nowhere to go. That door is locked. It's the middle of the night. And I'm supposed like he's not pulling me in there, but there's I've gotten to know a very interesting victimization trance, and I'll I'll tell you another story in a what minute. A, what a perfect word to describe that! It. It's not violent, no. it's not coercion, but it's almost magnifying beyond choice. There's a, there's like a freeze that takes yeah. place in the yeah. in the victim that um, the, the another option isn't an option like i could have yeah. ran away it's not no one there was no barriers there was no yes. and that i've studied that you know even and then going upstairs and then bending over in one of the doctor's tables and then him taking off his belt and me negotiating with him if he was going to beat me with his hands with his belt or with a stick and that will determine how much money he would give me like even that so this, this so the in addition to him raping you, he was also beating you. So rape didn't happen in that particular story. Okay. It wouldn't be more fondling and touching. and okay. um, It was never um, violent rape. But how a part of his perversion, how he would engage touching me. Please apologize to him, by the way, for me assuming that he rapes. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I wouldn't be very, I wouldn't, uh, yeah. Um, I, if I didn't know you, Cal, I wouldn't have made that joke. <laughs> it's all good. Absolutely. Yeah, I, um, um, but what I want to say is that the moment of when that door closed behind me is more embedded in my brain and in my, my brain cell in my nervous system than the interaction that happened afterwards. You know, that makes perfect sense to me because when the kid is 
experiencing the sexual abuse, they are generally leaving their body. They are dissociating. They're going to a place um, that isn't there partially. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Whereas leading up to it, I would imagine you're a little bit more in your body. And that that's like one of the most chilling metaphors I've I've ever heard for uh experiencing yeah i mean i want to i want to jump ahead because if anyone listened to this there'll be like the sequence of being able to identify this particular phenomenon i remember around that time in my age in my in my life again most people that are in arranged marriages your siblings are getting married most of people most kids in that community people are marrying people in that community Mm -hmm. only when a kid is a bit troubled or if a kid is a bit more modern or a bit more rebellious they will still marry into a Hasidic family but from a family outside of the community mm. so whenever you do that just like a no to self whenever someone is marrying outside of the community it's less of an of an ideal uh, marriage so my oldest brother had his own issues and his own problems I won't go into detail but he was marrying somebody from outside of the community so our entire family was in Borough Park for the weekend, the weekend after he'd gotten married. So I'll give you another visual. There's this huge building. Obviously, I went back years later, and it's not that, not as big. But as a kid, it's around sometimes in the afternoon, really hot outside in the summer, Brooklyn, New York. And we'd spend the whole afternoon at... A family's home and which was really lovely we came for you know Jews they do that three different prayers in a day and so it was close to Mincha and we are in this synagogue and if the door was over there mm-hmm. I was standing next to two adults and they were talking to each other and all uh, of a Cal sudden was, Cal was pointing to his, like his far right. right and I'm literally looking north west and if you're looking at southeast is where the door was mm-hmm. and you know we had just arrived there nothing in particular was going on in the building and all of a sudden my entire body flipped around like literally if someone was pulling my hair chest to four doors right next to each other and towards the end the door was open so probably a foot and a half and a guy is standing there with a lollipop and showing me to come. What? There's no better way of description. This is exactly how it happened. I'm doing my thing, standing there next to a few adults, and all of a sudden my whole body turns, and I see this guy yeah. um, with a lollipop, and all of a sudden I fe- literally felt like he was pulling me through thin air to follow him. I go through that door, I walk down three staircases, and he pushes me into the corner and starts pulling down my pants. And all of a sudden, I came to, pushed him away, ran upstairs. I'm out of breath and I'm I'm almost like skipping over mm. um, the stairs, run back to where I was standing before. And the, the few adults, they look down at me and they go, it was almost like they had, I had no idea how long that took. It could have mm. been a second. It could have been two minutes. could have been a half an hour. Time didn't exist. And one of the reasons why I, I, when I tell that story, it's, it's kind of like I had this invisible sign on my forehead that said, fuck me. 
And that's the relationship between pedophiles and victims that I was always fascinated by. There's, there's something in the victimization that victims take comfort in, in the, almost in the re-victimization of abuse. Now, I don't understand, mm-hmm. um, and I have not studied that extensively. I did run a nonprofit, mm-hmm. Prevention of Childhood Sexual Abuse. Mm-hmm. I did meet with a lot of uh, offenders and, vic- mm-hmm. and victims. Do but you, by, by that, you, do you mean the act of it? Or falling under the spell of the falling person. under the spell. Okay, good because I want to clearly delineate between yeah. that. Um, and I believe it's something that abusers, all abusers, be it physical abusers, uh, it's like how do you find dominating? out of ten people who you're going to be able to dominate that way? I think people see it in the eyes. I think they see a hesitation in the eyes and a desire to please. Almost every person that I well, I should say many, many people that I have met who have been uh, victimized. Um, there is a desire to please that that they see a a um, I, I don't know. I suppose an innocence a a um, and is it conscious in the person that does it? So. Do they think this person's not going to talk? I can manipulate this person. I think that's a byproduct, but I think before any verbal communication, body language might be a part of it, but there is, I think there's an energetic, invisible dynamic that plays out i think you're i think you're right because often you'll hear people uh you know a a woman will share about being at a party and then all of a sudden from across the room the guy who is will then abuse her for the next five years their eyes meet and they don't see anybody else yeah so i mean on a more i just want to make sure that people who have been victims don't think that we are victim blaming that's that's what i want no to to be i i don't think it's consciously called you don't ask for it and I, I i mean no but even if you did no that's, amount that's of abuse yeah yes. no amount of abuse can ever be justified um, and the fact that if a, abuse happened again it is the responsibility of the abuser um for doing what he did even if the child asks for but it, it goes even abuse. further uh, from for victims i believe there is an identity that gets built around victimization. And that's certainly as you grow up. You know, when I started going through my own recovery and I started looking at my own actions, um, there self-beliefs. Right. Belief systems, like what was dry, what was making up this dysfunctional life of mine. And, and we can talk about in a moment how that came about, but, there is there's a benefit that i there's a benefit and a comfort for being locked in on a victim uh, identity as in um one i know how to feels two i know how to maneuver around it like we as human beings i believe that we built entire self image based on victimization mm-hmm. um because at the time we believe it to be true we believe that to be our worth and so then we can right. navigate it because there there's no unknown right right 
I mean, in mental health, that you see that a lot. I mean, why do people that are being physically abused stay with their abuser? I mean, it's yeah. it's rather to stay rather than rather than going through so much discomfort and even terror that is predicted than the unknown that is not and, predicted. And the same reason why the alcoholic or drug addict will continue to risk their life and everything they hold dear to get right. loaded right. because the idea of trying a life without it right. is right. more terrifying. I might die or I might have to start going to support groups. You know, I'm going to have to get back to you. <laughs> right. I got to... <laughs> Got to consider the, my options. Yes. So go ahead. But, yeah. So that was, uh, you know, I left at I left the community when I was around eleven years old, and again, that's usually where I pause. Hold that thought for one second. Yeah, we'll come back to it. The issue, the thing with the lollipop. Yeah. And by the way, congrats. First stereotypical lollipop moment, six years of doing the podcast. Uh, I'm going to see if I can make you a trophy. Um, <laughs> there, I think we had a van in the, uh, in the second year of the podcast. <laughs> Somebody who was, uh, whose perpetrator drove a van. Um, but the, the lollipop incident, was that with a different person? Mm-hmm. And was that before or after the encounters with the second in command guy I don't actually remember okay it was definitely not the same person but I can't remember which one was first Um, the guy second in command with him it happened quite a few times Um, but I don't remember which one happened first what do you remember thinking or feeling um from the moment you would feel that you had no choice in going someplace with this person through the event to sometime maybe the next day or that night or after you got dropped off or whatever so here here's an interesting spin on talking about sexual abuse I didn't even talk about those experiences as sexual abuse until around 18. Most people don't. Most Most people people don't because maybe you don't want to put a name on abuse. Or you don't think it was abuse. Right. You think that you had a choice because you didn't Uh fight or uh, part of it felt good or you felt sorry for that person or whatever. But most of those experiences with him almost felt like I had more control. So there, there's a very, there's a few very distinct, I, I mean, like if I was an adult and I'm looking at a lot of, a little kid and the kid is really confused and the kid is like, feels taken advantage of, like obviously I'll look at him and be like, you're a kid. Like, regardless of what was going through your brain mm-hmm. or your mind, it's not relevant. He's an adult. You're a kid. You should know love, security, predictability, healthy environments. Any adult that breaks that should be thrown off a building, for lack of a better word. Like, if I'm looking at it as black and white and I go, no, you as a kid, you are com- you come into the world. What you should know is safety. Mm-hmm. What you should know is security. 
So when you go into the big, crazy adult world, um, you can start adapting to the lack of security and predictability right. in a healthy way. Yeah. But first, you should have security. So you can know what it feels like. Right. So you'll know when you don't have it. <laughs> right. That something needs to change. So I, I get intellectually that there is, yes, I get that. And the peak turn on and the peak vibrancy and the peak aliveness of my nervous system growing up was in those moments. And that's what I almost looked for for the rest of my life. The adrenaline. The adrenaline. Yeah. Those peak experiences. Yeah. So that moment where I could die or I can be really amused is, a, is, a, is an edge that has stayed with me. And I've kind of had to learn through meditation and through many other practices to, to get used to the, the, the lack the not-so-peak experiences. What do you mean when you say, or I could be amused? Or I can be amused. Um, or the worst won't happen. Either the worst will happen, or or it will be entertaining, or it would be... Um, I mean... When you're being abused? So when I was laying be- in that... When I was laying in that bed, or in the doctor's office, bent over being beaten in a way that almost was unbearable there's something about that experience that experience that had me feel amusement really yeah there's something about that experience that had me be had me feel more alive than my boring day-to-day life wow so the reason why I didn't call that abuse is because it didn't feel well violating in a little bit, but it didn't feel like it was, like it was being taken advantage of. I, it felt like I was relevant and significant to someone important while feeling really, really high sensation. Now, Feeling high sensation is fairly neutral. Um, the younger the child and the higher the sensation could be traumatizing mm-hmm. for the nervous system, not even as an intellectual thing, but just for the nervous system being like, no, now it should know safety. It should know fight or flight shouldn't be and, happening right now. <laughs> right. And if you can't flee, that's usually when right. dissociation does right. what it's supposed to do, yeah. which is your brain flees. Right. So this is where my experience has very frequently differed. And when I go back into my experiences and I talk to other victims, you know, most victims or a lot, a lot of victims, the definition of their victims means they mean that they have been violated. There's something that happened to them that they in their right mind would not want to have happened to them. They were touched in a particular way, hurt in a particular way. Um, it confused them. The scars stayed inside them. And I always felt that the trauma, for lack of a better word, that I went through was educational in one way. Um, introduced me to different do- domains of my own personal 
life and my own personal experience that I would not have gotten if I was just a normal child treated normal normally. Um, so I only started using abuse when I started encountering other victims from this community and from victims that I know who were victimized by him, that his interactions with them were a lot more crazy and more abusive. And so I, so yeah, that's, it's an interesting topic. What do you mean it, it introduced you to areas of your life that, that help me understand the parts of it that, that you, uh, what I mean by those other aspects of my life. Yeah. The positives help me understand, or at least for a portion of time in your life that you saw as positive. I assume you, do you still feel that there were positive things that came out of it for for you personally? Yeah. Okay, help me understand those. Because I think okay. right now the listener is going, is, is what going, about that could be positive? Exactly. Okay. The way I used to describe it to people is like, as a kid, you grow up and there's like a little faucet that eventually, that this thing called sexuality. Mm-hmm. And at different stages in one's life, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 that faucet kind of gets opened naturally um, in a particular rate. Now, what happened to me is that someone opened that faucet really fast at a younger age. Because it was just by its nature such sensory overload emotionally and physically. But that sensation was, is and was within my capacity of feeling as a human. So... And here's a completely different topic, and then I'll come back to this for a second. When I went through a ton of different conferences on sexual abuse and pedophilia and trying to understand that whole dynamic, um, I've, I remember learning the, the implications of abuse is a lot harsher past abuse than the actual abuse. Meaning oh, the I shame, definitely, definitely the integration, that. Yes. The, all that, th- that the experience in and itself grow- that we call the abuse or that was actually abuse is more neutral. And it's a drop in the bucket generally in terms of the ripples. The ripples are the part that exactly hurt your life. Meaning you can't, you're not sharing it with anybody. You're afraid you're, you're ashamed or you don't felt really good and you don't really know what where to place it. You don't trust people. Right. Yeah. So not all abuse is you took something really hard, something really big into a small hole and you, and there's blood and there's violence not yes that happens and it's so insanely unfortunate but a lot of the times it happens you are coddled you are Mm -hmm. pursued you are um made to feel manipulated you are made special powerful Mm -hmm. and so on and so for me yes i was made feel special yes i was rewarded yes i was given props to even come back for it again but i was introduced to i think the world of bdsm Mm -hmm. at a very young age i felt more powerful being submissive Mm -hmm. the high sensation points of abuse was kind of pleasurable Mm -hmm. Uh, i would venture to say as a as an adult who is being beaten with a stick or with a cane or with a whip 
and can hardly sit had the same sensation sensations and the same experiences that I did when I was eight, nine years old. Well, granted, well, if it was my child, I would want to rip that person apart. But given it, given that it was me, and now looking to my experience from my adulthood, I don't see it as abuse. So I've always seen myself as privileged in the sense that this thing that we call resilience, that most psychologists and psychiatrists could never give me a, a normal, a, a correct answer mm-hmm. on what that actually is. But I would assume that it's very similar of a word than like, what is a spiritual experience? Well, mm-hmm. we can give you some parameters and it, it, it translates to different people differently. But I feel once I started dealing with my own with forgiveness around the anger and the anger was not so much that experience. The anger was so much was more about being abandoned, not being understood and naturally. So, um, by your parents, by my parents, by the community. Um, as in, I wasn't looked after. I I wasn't, when I started questioning the leadership in the community, when I started telling other people about what had happened, when I started talking to other kids who I saw leave his office, I was the one who was being punished or like they just wanted to do away with me. So the way they dealt with me was to take me out of the community and place me with a family in Brooklyn. You know, instead of confronting that guy. Exactly. When the child goes to a parent or an trusted adult and tells them what happened, and nothing is done, right? or the child is shamed, or some other negative thing, that people say that that was often more traumatic than right. the events themselves. And um, two things uh, that, that strike me. Number one is, uh, you know, if you've ever heard a, a dominatrix interview, the one of the things they'll say is most of their submissive clients are people who are powerful in their everyday life. Yeah. And the second thing, when you were talking about the nervous system kind of expanding that yes. that faucet widening is it reminds me of almost exactly what war veterans describe that when they come home it they it's miss dull. that rush even though they don't want yeah. to see their buddy get killed the intense they miss the intensity of it because they've never felt more alive yeah let's get back to that because yes. i derailed with that uh, one of my guests, Jesse Perez, in his episode, he was a gang member, and he said, the greatest high I've ever had was being shot at. Yeah. You can't, there's no option to get distracted. There's no option to, like, I'm the guy, I, I remember being a, a part of this organization in San Francisco a couple of years ago, and at one day, we found out that somebody had just shot herself. And the entire room is freaking out. And I just get crystal clear, Mm -hmm. focused. You do this. You do that. Sit down. Take some water. Shut up. Call this person. And I saw the same thing when bombs were exploding in Israel. Like, there was a suicide bomb once. I was downtown. Everyone is running away, including my Mm ex-wife. And I'm running toward it. Like, there's... Things slow down for you. It goes back to that experience. But... Coming, coming back to that analogy of, so I feel like maybe I was traumatized, maybe I was privileged 
regardless of the label of was it right or was it wrong, I was just introduced to higher levels of sensation. Mm. Now, when... Are you saying that you can't clearly label it wrong? Or are you saying whether or not I benefited from that door being opened in I my... absolutely can label it wrong from the perpetrator. Right. Meaning he was an adult, I was a kid. Right. That That is black and white. Interpreting my experience, I don't feel victimized. I feel... Do you realize how how crazy that sounds, though? <laughs> Be- because I... Well, well I, yeah, because well, I've sat around victims. Yes. I've cried with hundreds of victims, and I've listened to yes. insane stories all yes. through my life. And I'm not clearly not calling you crazy. Yeah. I just... My purpose <laughs> with this podcast is to help people with different experiences understand ourselves and other people and so i i want what you're sharing since it not a lot of people speak about it as candidly as you do or have the experience that you do i want to make sure that we're uh we're not being fuzzy in some of the things that that we describe yeah um are you saying that the overall net was a positive for you or that just by having some things come out of it that you use in your daily life, it doesn't feel like the typical victim scenario? I mean, it's a really good question because I haven't thought of it for a very long time. And now when I'm thinking back before age 18, so when it all fell apart, <laughs> when, when, when this rageful, angry full of resentment, drug addict of a kid um, was coming crashing down. Um, I remember sitting with this rabbi once in Brooklyn and he's telling me, I'm telling him some of my stories, he's telling me some of his stories and he was also a survivor. And I, I remember having this cathartic moment of how are you so affectionate or how are you so caring i remember looking at him and being like you are representing of that community but at the same time you're representing care and compassion to what i went through and i remember my brain kind of short-circusing so for me to say that i've always believed that my experience growing up was a positive would be a lie okay because all through my teens i was i used to envision taking a gun and shooting that guy Mm -hmm. i used to uh, i was rageful against that culture. So I can't say it was like, uh, it helped me come to be this healthy, good human being. Um, But it's very interesting, even now sitting right here, like thinking about how disturbing that experience was up to 18. And now there's not a conscious cell in my body that sees that experience as negative. Um, No part of it as negative? No. Other than the fact that this guy is still... Other than still... the fact that he's still not in prison. Yeah. And his son is married to my youngest sister. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. So, so it gets better. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm walking in San Francisco, um, more in Berkeley, in yeah. the Bay Area, one Friday afternoon, and my mother calls me. She goes, call me. I need you to sit down. And I'm like, she called, at this point, we're in communication frequently. And I go, okay, this is bad. 
Starbucks somebody had died. And she goes, sit down, I need to ask you something. And I go, okay, I walk into Starbucks, I sit down. And I go, okay, what's going on? She goes, well, you know how your sister is now 17, 18? I go, yes. What's well, around that time when she's supposed to get married? I go, yes. And a few different matchmakers, Shatchanam, have recommended the same boy. So in my head, I'm like, obviously this guy, is, this boy must be a really good candidate that different individuals in the community kind of felt it. And I go, well, that's great news. Why, why do you need why do you need me to sit down? You could have just told me that. She goes, well, I want to tell you one thing that if you are not okay with it, I will never ask you again. I will never question you. We will never go through with it and you will never hear of this again. <laughs> What's Yiddish for the kicker? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, okay. And she goes, well, he's the son of, and then names his name. And the first thing that popped into my head before I can have any logical other thought was don't punish the son for the sins of his father. Oh, I thought it was going to be, I'll kill him at the wedding. <laughs> I know. I know. It wasn't anything close to that because yeah. I had already shaken his hand. I've already done my forgiving of my past, forgiving of him. I had already gone back to the community. I've confronted some mm -hmm some individuals in the community. So this is at, at a point where I felt I had made pa made peace, peace with my past. Mm -hmm. And I had gone through lots of therapeutic processes. And at this point, I wasn't living my life based on what had happened to me. And uh, my mother's like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to decide right now. I want you to take the weekend. And we'll talk after the weekend. And I'm like, great. I, I, I'm happy to take the weekend. But I don't have, if he has not been abused and if he's, healthy and if he's meant to be with my sister you know his father will have what mm -hmm. what 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 he, yes as in we'll deal with his father separately dad had me actually it created this entire chain of 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 events that was incredible for many people including myself i went back to new york and the way my girlfriend would tell the story the woman that i was dating at the time that I went to my sister's wedding in New York, and six months later, she boxed up all my stuff from, from the closet and sent it to New York. I literally had just gone for a weekend and stayed in New York, um, confronted him again, the father. I went to the wedding, confronted him, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, unexpectedly, all these victims came out of everywhere, all every hole in the wall. Mm -hmm. um, Basically, to you or to just me, yeah. came out to me being like, one, a consideration I never thought of, as in, you're the only one who can actually confront him because you're not in the community, you don't care about what he's going to do to you or he mm -hmm. can't have any effect on you. Um, why do you think he wants to marry into your family? And that I don't think that was ever a consideration on his end, although I don't know. It. Oh, because now he, looking back, because could he make sense. arranged the marriage. Not the son didn't choose the marriage. Was I mean, arranged. it's always between families. It's that's like actually like uh, a whole like sixteenth century. It. It's like Shakespeare. You know, you would marry somebody. Uh, you know, the daughter of the king. You didn't want to go to war with. <laughs> yes, yes. So I don't. I will never know unless if I can see his mind. I don't know if that was ever a consideration. But that switched something in me being huh 
And then they started going, they wanted me to confront him for them. The, the survivors. Those other victims. And did your brother-in-law know that his father had done these things to you? And did your sister know these things? I never. Because your mom knew. Yeah, my mom knew. I don't know. I know that my sister and his son found out after I had, there was a documentary and a video that went viral me talking about my experience and naming him. Mm. Um, and why not name him here? I, I don't know. I, I haven't even... I'm not pressing you to do yeah, it. I just want you to know if I you... I found myself not saying it, although I don't have any problem with it being said. Okay. Um, so I come back for the wedding. Um, his name is Hershey Breyer. I am participating in the, the wedding. The brother-in-law or the the his father. Okay. So the the guy who sexually abused me abused. Okay. I I want to say hundreds of other people. Okay. Although I don't know the exact number. So I confront him. I sit down with him, and I go, "Here's this name, this name, this name." They, I believe, they should have some closure to what had happened to them. And basically, the ultimatum we're giving you is you either come out publicly and admit what you did so they can have some peace of mind and not feel like they're completely crazy, or we're going to pursue legal actions. As in, you do whatever you're going to do, but we're going to take it to the DA's office. We're going to take it to actually reporting it as a crime or report the abuse. And his entire concern in that conversation was, what could he do to silence them? Of course. Of course. Of course. I was, I mean, the amount of disappointment on my end, why I didn't record it, is never, I mean, yes. I have met with the FBI, I've met with the DA's offices, I've met with detectives. I wish I had that conversation on tape. Because afterwards, when I started going after it, I was not able to. Um, but, you know... There was there was never the denial of what he's done. Um, he was uh, uh, so. Let's back up a little bit. So he didn't deny it to you, but he just wouldn't say it publicly, and he wouldn't apologize to the right. other victims. Right. There was no press release. There was no. I mean. So so here's the thing. So when I got when I was 18 and I went into rehab, um, upstate New York, a second cousin of mine who found out that I was going to treatment came in. And the first time I talked about my abuse was when I was in rehab. Now, he is upset, pissed off, rageful for what had happened. He is committed to go to confront the square Rebbe about his right-hand person. And he's basically threatening. And there was a huge ordeal. Never got the, ra the exact details, but there was screaming. He was kicked out of the room. There was literally confronting the square Rebbe. Um, nothing happened publicly, but he, Hershey Breyer, was sent to treatment for his behavior, for his pedophilia, for yeah, his... just used air quotes. Yeah, yeah. for his uh, um, proclivities. <laughs> so the entire community... I, so granted, I had mm -hmm. left when I was 11-ish, all through my teens, I go through what I go through, drug abuse, trying to deal with life, homicidal thoughts, suicidal mm -hmm. thoughts, 
all that. I get sober. I confront my feelings for the first time. Lots of crying, lots of waking up, lots of incredible experiences that we can write a book about. But I now found out, find out that he, the entire community knew that something was up with him because he was given an ultimatum to go for treatment. So he's losing his entire hair. So years later, I find out that the authorities, the whatever committees that are can influence him, that are responsible for the PR in the community mm-hmm. and the safety of the community and the finances of the community, knew that he had a problem mm-hmm. and he was sent to treatment for his pedophilia. So now I'm assuming he has no sex drive. I'm assuming he's recalibrating to life in... Uh, I don't know the exact term, but there is a treatment for pedophiles where uh, the hair he, he lost his he's hair. He's going what do you to mean? treatment for his pedophilia, and the result of the treatment that he was going through, he lost his hair because of a chemical or the, yeah. sh- the stress of treatment. No, because of the chemical. Like oh. the bi- one of the byproducts of taking that oh, injection. So was he chemically castrated? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I was forget that term. Okay. But yeah, he was chemically yeah. castrated. He's losing his hair. He's going through all the shame, but then recalibrated, recalibrated into the community and never lost his position, never lost his role, never lost. Mm. So here I am. I come back to the community after being away for many years. I go to the wedding. I sit down with him and go, I'm sorry, this is not going to work for me or for them anymore. Whatever you did that you think... Um, that you've done right with the world and the people that you've abused. I'm now hearing from other kids in the community that you're still inappropriate. And I'm literally looking at pictures Mm -hmm. that you're still inappropriate with with kids. Kids are young teenagers are still receiving money from you. And we know you're not just giving out money. So, so I basically give him this ultimatum. I then started the process of creating my nonprofit from that whole interaction. So we started looking for other kids or young adults who were still within the statute of limitation to testify against them. We couldn't find that. We couldn't find anyone who would be willing to. One night he disappears, escapes the very community that he's running, responsible for, invested millions of dollars in real estate in, and literally escaped without his in-laws even knowing where he was going. Um, So I don't know the exact time, I don't know the exact date, but his wife being informed, his family, immediate family finding out of who he has been and the ramifications of what he's been, all started crumbling at the same time, and he literally bolted Mm -hmm. before any actual arrest or any indictment was going to happen Mm. and escapes to Israel. And that's where he is now. And now that's where he is. And they won't extradite him. They won't extradite him because they don't have a case because they don't have any victims that are within the still the statute of limitation that would be willing to testify. A podcast doesn't count. Nope. I've been on national television. It's a good one. Yeah, but this is, uh, (laughs) this is a podcast. Although here in LA, the statute of limitation has been, um, changed. Thank God. And Thank a God. lot of places. One of our former guests did a like 15,000 mile walk through Europe wow. to bring awareness 
to um, the outdated laws uh, protecting children. Yeah. And he had laws changed in many, many um, wow. countries. Yeah, God bless Maddie McVerish. Uh, That's amazing. Great, great episode. Um, so is that one of the things that you mean that came out of this was that you right. found this purpose in your life? We founded the nonprofit that then gave voice to many people to go get treatment. Um, in my own experience, like I, I spent many years at an organization in San Francisco that was focusing on orgasm. So there was, there's a lot of about my personal life, um, in my adult identity of a person in my own personal relationships that have blossomed and have given me a lot of power and satisfaction that kind of came out of what I went through. What would you mean when you say the orgasm organization? So there's an organization in San Francisco. And by the way, I never want to use their keyboard. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, there's an organization in San Francisco that I was a part of that teaches and practices orgasmic meditation. Okay. Just like. Is it similar to Tantra or no? It has a lot of similar concepts to Tantra, but okay. it's a very, very particular practice okay. of a strokey and a stroker. And mm-hmm. basically the practice of bringing more awareness in to pleasure in the body. So again, back to the spectrum of sensation, mm-hmm. how much people allow themselves to feel. Now this is a, a very deliberate practice that has X amount of time, X technique, uh, in a very safe container, um, which I think every adult should be introduced to that practice before they get entangled in the misconceptions and the insanity around desire and sexuality yeah. and so on. But um, I, again, I grew up in a world where social structure, political structure, economic structure, um, the norm, I kind of left as a kid so my entire life as an adult has been the exploration and the search of alternative lifestyles alternative sexualities alternative viewpoints to purpose and so Mm -hmm. on so one of those things that um, that was a part of my journey was that so many things you you took from this and i you know i just had this image in my mind of you made it out of the burning building with some lamps and some chairs. You know what I mean? (laughs) And some people die in that burning building. Some people leave with nothing and they lost everything in there. Um, And I I would count myself as one of the people, while I am not glad that what happened to me as a kid happened to me as a kid, I'm glad that I've been able to salvage some positives from it Mm. um, to begin questioning the world. Right. Um, that to, was like a, one of the things that caused you the question. Yeah, because I put all the shame have. on myself. And right. so then I am just always trying to read people. I mean, right. I'm sure you're great at reading a room and oh, yeah. picking up on vibes from, from people. And 
you know, on and on and on and on. And, and doing this podcast brings meaning and purpose into my life. And, and I, I mean, I think I see so many people that have accomplished so many great things. Mm-hmm. Most of them were damaged goods at some point. Most of yeah. them were so beaten into something that the way that they dealt with horrific experiences was greatness mm-hmm. or getting really good at something yeah. or building something in a response to what they went through. I agree. So Every- if you go back, it's like, would I have wanted to be a normal kid? Hell no. A normal kid would have had me stay in that community. Yeah. Wow. There, there, there's so many things to ponder about your story and the places that it, it led. Um, okay. but I'm so glad you came and shared it because, um, the average person who isn't a survivor has no idea the scope of experience and ripples. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I'm glad you brought up intensity, sexual intensity, because yeah. it is a topic that isn't really discussed too much or the sensory overload, be it sexual or PTSD or, or anything else. But yeah. um, I, mean, I, wa- I want to point out something very interesting that had happened to me. So this guy, Mikey, this big muscular black guy, I'm locked up in rehab around 18 years old. And one day I'm walking around with that look in my face of contemplating suicide. Now, I wasn't looking at myself. I wasn't in front of a mirror. I'm assuming it looked at a partic- it looks it looks a particular way. Do you call it your rest- resting death face? <laughs> I'm probably look devoid of yeah. any excitement. Um, and he comes up to me. And I will never forget where he walked up to me. And we started a conversation. And he goes, Cal, perhaps there's no point to live. Perhaps there's no reason, there's no goodness in your life that you can come up with to say, hey, there's good purpose to live or like there's nothing, uh, you don't see a point to this life that you're currently living. But imagine in 20 years from now, there'll be another person who will have the same exact experiences as you and you will be the only person to save that person's life. Wouldn't you want to be alive to see that? And that was the first time in my adult life that I stopped. Like living was not so much anymore about me that perhaps my experience would be able to have some impact on somebody. It, it shifted something so monumental that its effects was on, I only felt for the next 15 years. Wow. Of, And I remember the commitment in my head at that time was that I will always share my experience, regardless of how inappropriate it is, regardless of how stifling it is, because if there's one person in an entire room that will be able to relate to my experience and will give them hope, or will give them the feeling, oh my God, I'm now the only one, that my life will be worth living. And since that point, I remember I was living in Israel, and one day I found myself in the same in exact situation where I'm sitting at a at a, a, a pizza shop in downtown Jerusalem. And we kind of played a very deliberate game. It was like literally 15 people around the table and we're all talking. And I had a few rules like you can't, you can't um, disagree with somebody. And if somebody's sharing while they're standing and talking, you can't interrupt them. So people had to kind of finish what they were saying. And then if you want to pick up the conversation from there, 
please do so. But it was no, there was no, you can't respond to that person. Mm-hmm. You just share whatever came up for you or not. And the conversation obviously was doing organically what it was doing, but I was taking it towards sexual abuse in the Jewish mm-hmm. world and the Hasidic world. There's a lot of kids there that came from that world. And when I came out, this woman came into my face and she goes, how dare you? Like, how dare you talk about such sensitive um, topics in public? And I told her the same exact story that I just told you about mm-hmm. Mikey. And it was only a couple months later, she walked up to me again and, and, and basically told me it was the first time she had heard somebody talk about sexual abuse in the way I did. She went back to London, confronted the rabbis that had abused her. They, like this entire chain of events that had happened um, of her now going to school to become a therapist. And, and she years later, she started a paper in London that wow. in a center. Like there was this entire... And that was just one of I can consider until I'm yes. blue of stories that that came from that commitment of like I will share my story. If you're uncomfortable, that's on you. Mm-hmm. But um, what and obviously, you, what if you're in an elevator? <laughs> <laughs> well, elevators you don't really have that much time to have an entire. Well, uh, but you, yes, yeah, you got to do the condensed pitch yeah. of your of your story. Um, I cut yeah. you off. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I love to kill momentum with a half-baked joke. <laughs> um, but what that, how that woman reacted to you, it, the fact that she was a, a survivor yeah. who hadn't dealt with it yet. Every time I hear a parent shut down a child that comes mm-hmm. to them, I always think the same thing. That person doesn't want to deal with their abuse. Their and that's mm-hmm. why it's easier to call your child a liar you know, or whatever, or they're afraid of being on their own or what, you know, whatever. But, yeah. um, thank you so much for, for coming and, and sharing all Absolutely. this. Um, and, uh, it I was just my really, pleasure. Absolutely. I just really appreciate it. Absolutely. What a great guy. Um, I'm so lucky to have people, uh, like him in my life. That's one of the things I love about recovery so much is you, you get surrounded by people who are seeking a better internal life. Um, and it's been my experience that the people that seek a better internal life, um, all the outside stuff just has a way of, of working out um, as we do the internal work and learn to set boundaries and do all these other concepts that were so new uh, to, to so many of us when we started doing them. But um that's it for the the show um uh, this week um again i wish i had the energy to do some more uh surveys here but uh you know my head is made of marshmallow maybe because i've been doing nothing but eating marshmallow um i'm not convinced that a ghost isn't controlling me and making me get up and uh to <laughs> my sunrise sugar workout anyway i hope you heard something tonight that uh helped you, inspired you, comforted you, um, provoked you, did anything other than bored you. That would be the worst. Uh, Actually, you probably wouldn't still be listening at this point. You probably would have turned it off. But um, now I'm just starting to run my mouth. And uh, that's not good for either of us. So never forget that you are not alone. And uh, we are all connected and 
I believe that one of the reasons that we are on this planet is to feel the peace and the joy of helping each other and being good to ourselves. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely